0: This is Energy Voice Out Loud leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alison Thomas and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week in person by my two colleagues, Ed Reed and Andrew Dykes. Now, be honest, are you up here for the Christmas Village, Edward?
1: I, I mean, I, I heard it was the go-to event. I've been very much enjoying looking out from the office windows and looking down and seeing it. So, you know, I, I, I love a dodgem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Things I'm you didn't full, expect to hear.
1: Full of the festive spirit this time just really really fired up just really to
2: embrace yeah. that uh... I, I can't express to the viewers and potentially listeners as well that we've built this podcast studio with our own hands this morning that's well. right
0: yeah <laughs> yeah this background has been uh, the bane i think of our of our mornings uh, so far but, uh, but it's looking great it it it's, it's fabulous um, <laughs> why are you both up really Maybe tell us a little bit about what's been happening up at ev towers and
1: sure so we we we, we launched uh e forward uh yesterday there was uh there was an event uh in the office and, and then we went out for a slap up feed uh which was great uh we did we did a panel we had some talks um, And I'm going to be talking uh, a little bit later about some of the CCS uh, points that we
0: covered. Look at that. It's setting us up, ready to go. Uh, (laughs) So we will get on to the CCUS stuff, as Ed says. But let's kick off, I think, the only real place to kick off this week is goings on at uh, Grangemouth, Andrew. Some pretty serious uh, news coming out of there this week. Bring us up to speed, if you could.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it felt like there's a lot of... Topics that we could have covered this week, but this certainly felt like the biggest surprise and probably the biggest story to, to dive into. So, it was a news broke on Wednesday that uh, Grangemouth, Scotland's last remaining oil refinery capacity, could close as soon as 2025. Um, and it's kind of come amid a reported decline from, from some of the operators around North Sea flows uh, and a, a reduced demand for the fuels that the refinery produces. So, a couple of sort of stuff up the top it's operated by Petro Ineos, which is a joint venture between Petro and Ineos. And it is only the uh, oil, the crude refinery that we're talking about at the site. Mm. Um, INEOS is going to continue to operate the rest of the site, which does plastics and, and pet chems as well. Um, but obviously, it's uh, a big employer in Grangemouth in the region. <laughs> the site in general uh, employs around two thousand people. Um, so there's there's five hundred at the refinery. There's around four hundred and fifty that work on the Forties pipeline, which also comes into Grangemouth as well, and around a thousand uh, across the other INEOS petrochemicals uh, business. So. Uh, petro has said that it doesn't intend to, to close the site completely and instead going to invest in a resilient fuels import terminal as part of an 18-month uh, refinery transition project. So uh, instead of refining the crude on site, it's going to be importing petrol, diesel, aviation fuel and kerosene from vessels arriving via the 4th. And uh, the, the news that broke this week was essentially that they're starting the preparatory work and some of the studies for that now. I think there's a lot still uh, under consultation with the workforce as well they've said it's going to give them greater operational flexibility and it will safeguard the site rather than having to, to close that asset completely. Uh, and it will still be a national fuel hub for decades to come. Um, it obviously is a very important asset. I think it's, it's important to stress that, you know, um, it's refines around 150,000 barrels per day. It's one of only six crude refineries in the UK and it's the only one left in Scotland, which I think is kind of the, the big mm-hmm. headline from this is, you know, this is a national asset for sure. Um, and it Apparently, su- supplies around eighty percent of the fuel north of the border as well. The whole the whole site completely is is uh, around seven million tons of fuels per year and one point four million tons of cams per year as well. Um, so there's a lot still up in the air. I think um, we we kind of tried our best to, to kind of bottom out what of the what was going on on the day. I think crucially from Petronios, it was not a closure as was widely reported, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, but not not a closure of, of obviously this mm. capacity as well. Um, Frank DeMay, the, the head of refining at Petriona, said it's a, a necessary step. He said there's been a decline in, uh, in the demand for the fuels that it produces and that basically they're, they're being prudent around this asset. They've taken you know, a relatively long lead time on it, just this 18 months kind of uh, preparatory work. And uh, they have to plan accordingly. Um, obviously, we've heard in recent months, yeah, decline through the 40s field yeah. has been something that INEOS chairman Jim Ratcliffe has, has uh, raised, uh, also <laughs> drawing a bit of ire at the government around the sort of supposed lack of any other energy widespread energy security plans. Um, Whether or not how related that is, I'm not sure. It feels like there's a bit of room for for negotiation and all that.
0: Can can I ask about that specifically? Because I mean, I heard um, the Scottish Energy Minister, Neil Grey, in in Parliament yesterday, and and he said from his discussions with uh, the owners, this is not the result of any kind of political decision or policy from Westminster or Holyrood. Now, based on what Jim Ratcliffe was saying, I believe he said it on Rosebank day two months ago or something like that but the lack of flows (laughs) that you mentioned um i got the sense that was an epl linked um issue or at least that's the way they framed it um so i I don't know is is this a surprise Uh, you know to what extent i mean can we can we link this to the epl in any kind of justified way do we think at this point
2: i mean the 40s has been operating since the mid 70s right i mean it's long time it's, it's, it's come into there for a long time and at that point i think it was a BP refinery, and BP petchem site, and I think it's it's changed hands a few times in that in that period. And as I say, different portions of the site that do different things. Um, but then Ineos has taken over kind of the mid two thousands. Over that time, obviously the the forties asset has matured. The the, yeah. the uh, fields that feed into that have matured, and I, you know I don't think it should necessarily be a surprise that flows would be declining. Right, it, it is a maturing it's asset natural. from from maturing part of the basin. So I, I think it's really hard to to suggest that this is uh, a short term problem that has been caused in the past 18 months to two years Mm. by licensing however there is obviously again this idea around certainty and that you know maybe one or two more developments could have been made or could have plugged into this if there was more certainty different fiscal systems whatever around the
1: the basin to encourage that i mean so i just want to pick up on something you said earlier you you said it was a national asset right and i I, I, and and it provides 80 percent of the fuel um how does that work i mean in terms of is that if if that's correct, then how is it not keeping on going? Right? It, it it feels like there must be a commercial reason to stop producing. Right? So and there's there's obviously like a, a means to, to 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 change something else, which I feel is kind of emblematic of the kind of the wider kind of question around sort of jobs in Scotland and, and yeah. the energy industry. Right? But how, how do you how do you kind of square that?
2: I mean, I think there's a lot in play there as well. Obviously, so I think the downstream sector has probably even more boom and bust, perhaps the upstream sector, right?
0: <laughs> it's hard to believe. That, you know.
2: <laughs> I, know. I think Europe, the European margins at the moment, I think, are quite tough. I've, I've seen reports of um, this, I think, you know, from if, if you believe kind of what some of the uh, workers and stuff are saying had a very good year last year to do with the very quite volatile commodity prices and things was able to sort of do really well. So, I, I, you know, I think it, it's possible to generate cash and it's doing fine in the short to medium term. This is clearly the long term. What do you do after that? And if those flows are maybe going to decline even further, there
1: may become a point at which this kind of just ceases to to work and so the flows from the 40s pipeline right goes into the refinery right so and there's those volumes have been declining so where does, where does but they are still going where are they going to go somewhere else what's the plan I
0: th- well from from what i got I, I don't think 40s goes exclusively to grangemouth no, no. uh, uh to, is my understanding it's like this massive artery um the, the way it's set out but well i don't know i mean the, the issue around you know, we've been talking a lot about Rosebank recently, you know, that's oil that's going to be sent to most likely Europe because we don't have refineries in the UK that can basically handle the product. That's part of the the reasoning there. You would think that, well, you know, flows from 40s are cutting down. Couldn't we divert some of the other products towards there? But I suppose that would involve investment in pipelines and things like that right around the, t- the north of scotland well, so and possibly yeah. also
1: changes to the refinery right if the sure. crude is different then you need to so i think there is already
2: a lot of crude also comes from the west coast uh finner which is their other oil terminal on the west coast and is piped through obviously the mix between what is coming straight off the north sea on the east and what's coming through on the the west i'm not sure I need to do a bit more digging into kind of how these flows break down but i think you know clearly it's a a long-term declining basin problem rather than an EPL this has just happened in the, the past 18 months and you know who who would want to get into the refinery business at the moment right? it's a really it's a really tricky business to do I, th- I think what's interesting though is this idea around you know and we hear this a lot around the the, the oil North Sea oil and that's sort of this energy security this asset but actually if we're going to be importing various kinds of fuels we seem to be kind of at the mercy of the market regardless right I mean it's
1: it, it's still going to be. But, I mean, it's it's a, it's it's a, it's a market. Local. It's a market, right? Like yeah. whether you're buying it from from Greece <laughs> exactly. or on yeah. the international, you know, from a from a tanker that's kind of passing by, you're still buying it from like exactly. an internationally set price. I mean, I think obviously there are challenges. I would say looking at the kind of the global refining picture around uh, refining capacity and and obviously. There's a real kind of economies of scale thing kind of going on. Um, the you know Nigeria is just opening the new Dangote plant uh, in December. It's you know it's 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 hundreds of thousands of barrels per day. Obviously, there's a question of scale, right? And mm. scale and certainty of supply. And it feels like you know Grangebath, obviously Obviously, people have they've, they've run the numbers, right? And
0: yeah, and that and that in turn makes me so they've set out plans to keep a portion of of the workforce at the very least and at some kind of future now the unions or one of the unions has been asking about nationalizing that's a whole kettle of fish I mean is that is that realistic I suppose would be the question I
2: personally don't see that as as realistic but I think it has certainly caught a lot of people off guard in terms of these these are going to be some of the really hard um, conversations that are going to have to be had amongst industry when we talk about energy transition right Mm. you know there, there is no sense, if, if the plan is kind of completely uneconomic, there's no sense in kind of prolonging that. But also you have these hundreds of people that are working there that have, you know, highly skilled, good jobs. And, uh, you know, clearly our thoughts are with the kind of 500 people there that, that are affected by this. Um, you know, the First Minister weighed in, I think, l- later on Wednesday and said, you know, the, the scale of job, of job losses could be quite significant and that the government was ready to, to work with businesses and with the unions. And uh, he acknowledged it, w- it would be a very worrying time. Um, Unite has, has played it a little bit more cautiously. They're kind of keen to, to learn a bit more. And, uh, you know, they just said that every option must be on the table for kind of both, I think, transition opportunities, but also kind of to protect as many as, as they can. Uh, RMT's offshore branch, yes, uh, did take a, a pretty uh, hefty pot shot at Jim <laughs> Ratcliffe, uh, suggesting uh, that he was kind of more interested in football at the moment, I think. Um, but also, yeah, it calls nationalised nationalise which I think, again, this is it's part of a wider site, it's just it's this one portion, it does a specific thing and, and they're kind of consulting on that. I, I think the idea that you would kind of the state would step in and take over a portion of it just to kinda of keep this going doesn't necessarily seem the best route either. Um, but I think as well that the Just Transition Commission I think who are already gonna visit as well in January prior to this announcement are saying, you know, they'll they'll do some consultations there and they really hope to, to be able to uh, get a credible plan for what a just transition for these uh, these workers would look like. But yeah, obviously, a lot is still in play and a lot of questions to be answered. But I think it speaks to to a lot of the wider conversations that we're going to be having around um, the the North Sea workforce and the onshore workforce and the energy transition.
0: OK, thanks for that analysis, Andrew. We'll leave the goings-on at Grangemouth for now. And next up, we'll be going on to a bit of CCUS with Ed Reed.
2: In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organizations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society, and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges, to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration, and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape.
0: Okay, Ed, so as you mentioned earlier, we had our eForward shindig here last night, and you've been doing a lot of work towards uh, this CCUS report that's been produced. Uh, tell us a bit about, I suppose, some of the takeaways, uh, and I gather that the UK has been has been ranked in terms of its progress as well.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, this is going to be published on uh, Energy Voice, I think, next week. E Forward members had a sort of a sneak preview yesterday and a bit of a sort of a chat around it. So um, so, uh, we've been talking to uh, Ray Jawad, uh, who's a principal at uh, Gaffney Klein, who's really sort of driven this report, and he crunched some numbers, looked at sort of uh, how attractive countries are to in, to invest in, uh, and and puts the uh, the UK at number five. Yeah. Um, so we had a sort of a discussion around uh, you know why the UK was ranked there, and you know what the sort of the factors were. Um, so I think I mean there were, there were there were some quite interesting takeaways. I think I mean, obviously just a little look at the uh, look at the index briefly. Uh, sort of the top two spots: North America, U.S., Canada. That doesn't feel like a surprise. Um, and then joint third was Norway and Denmark. Mm. Obviously, kind of making progress: Green Sands, Northern Lights. So, and then the UK number five. I think it's just a, just a you know provide my sort of inexpert uh, a, a opinion yeah is a
0: surprise to get number five I mean uh, yeah I think I think the n- number one two it's pretty incontrovertible but uh, yeah okay, yeah so, so the
1: reason the UK was number five is because essentially the, there's no FIDs there's no no injection has started right so mm. as soon as that changes raid was explaining you know that that the, those those numbers would change and and, and the UK's position would change um, so, I mean, it was it, it, it sort of started off looking at that sort of idea about sort of attractiveness and, and, and how the UK compares and then sort of broadened into a kind of more of a discussion around, I suppose, the challenges that we're sort of seeing in the in the UK North Sea. Um, I think so there, there were, there were you know, two kind of key points. Obviously, people talking about education and skills, that feels like always the way. And the other one that like, I kind of was a bit of a surprise for me actually was around pressures in the supply chain. Mm. And I think, you know, obviously we hear about this a lot in terms of sort of, you know, Offshore wind and you know things like that, but actually people are saying you know like we can't get the compressors. They're not the right price. They're not the right sort of you know size equipment. And essentially the answer to that, as always it seems, is uh, is, is imports from China, right? So it's- <laughs> where else? It's 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 kind of this thing, right? Where you know the UK has clearly got these kind of massive sort of CCS aspirations. You know those those numbers, billions of tons of of hmm. CO two that we can potentially store in the North Sea, potentially you know sort of you know, imports from from Germany, from mainland Europe, you know, it's kind of, you know, the the North Sea of the future, right? Sure. It's kind of one of those things. But it feels like, you know, yet again, there's this kind of point where we're looking at these opportunities and not seeing, I suppose, the sort of domestic manufacturing, yeah. right, that would be needed to kind of deliver some of those. Uh... It
0: feels like the same the same issue no matter what we're right? we talking about, if it's offshore wind <laughs> or decom or, or CCS or hydrogen, like this the UK has these Grand ambitions, admirable ambitions, but we just have not set up our supply chain in any kind of realistic way to compete in in, in these spaces. It's quite it's quite frustrating. Is that was there any sense of that in the, in the room last night? Yeah, I mean, so so there, there was. I mean, and people
1: were saying, you know, that this is this is you know people just identifying this as a problem, and and clearly, I mean, I think one of the things that i kind of came back to was was a sort of a, a desire for sort of political will to change it right? right and i think you know people were saying look we're kind of at a point where we were like 20 years ago with offshore wind when we were seeing you know sort of the start of this potential industry uh and there was not that sort of drive to you know onshore you know that yeah. manufacturing and they're saying you know like essentially we're kind of at the same point now i mean i think obviously there are going to be challenges like the uk doesn't have a massive sort of industrial base we i don't think there's anybody who would say that we could you know do all of all of the kind of the bits of kit that would be needed to kind of make you know ccs happen or or, 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 but i think there is a sort of a sense that if uh you know there was slightly more direction um that that maybe you know the the kind of you know again it's kind of a it's always it always seems to come back for for, a plea for sort of government intervention (laughs) yeah uh, it's funny that (laughs) yeah to say look give us money so we can kind of do this um, and but like, it's, well, it's not
0: it's not just a money thing though. I mean, like for for CCS, you've got like creating a business model uh, to make that work in the right way as well. I mean, a lot, a lot of this does it does come down to the regulator as well. I, mean, yeah. but I think I think you're right. There is there is often that conversation around um, public intervention, I suppose.
2: Because, one yeah. one thing that struck me as well was on on the kind of skills front was that you know we have the talent here, and, and a lot of them are kind of uh, North Sea oil and gas backgrounds and have a lot of experience in that. But we are, you know, increasingly at the point where developers are looking elsewhere, and that talent is going to go elsewhere.
0: Like America, Green... Uh, it, uh, yeah.
2: East Asia, all these are the places that are looking, because there are actually thing, projects they can work on there. And at the moment, you know, there's a lot of stuff being done in the background and that's all very well good. But yeah, we're really at hitting this point where it's like some FIDs and some, yeah. some investment and some boots on the ground would be great.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, I think that, you know, like in addition to that kind of question around sort of, you know, that kind of manufacturing idea, there, there were also some quite interesting ideas around, you know, the sort of the infrastructure and, you know, kind of, I mean, I think, Alistair you were, you were sort of talking to me earlier this week about that kind of the decommissioning liabilities yeah. and, and how that can be converted. Maybe you can shed some light on that in a moment. Sure. But I mean, one 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 thing, one point that was raised actually was, this kind of idea about you know should we be you know plugging CO2 back into these uh, depleted reservoirs? Obviously, there are going to be then you know risks around you know reservoir seal. How do you make sure that the the, the wells are kind of you know going to be secure enough to to hold the uh, the, the, conducts the under you know essentially underground forever? Yeah. Like the, the, the sort of the, the nightmare scenario is essentially you put the the CO2 underground and then it starts coming back out again, and that is. Obviously, a disaster for the industry, and it's a disaster for the kind of the wider idea around yeah. you know how, how how attractive CCS is. I think there were some really interesting questions around um, the kind of that kind of reservoir risk and, mm. and how you kind of uh, you kind of carve up that yeah. responsibility. And, and obviously it's like a big project, right? Because you you know, you know were saying yeah. about the, the, um, the, the budget.
0: Yeah, uh, well, maybe to take that point first, I mean, the, the P&A, the plugging and abandonment thing, it, it's essentially, yeah, essentially the same thing as what they would do to abandon an oil well. And there's a lot of, actually here, talking about the supply chain, a lot of companies here in Aberdeen with some real specialism in that front. Um, Sentinel's up, CB1, shout out to them. Um, They've got a kind of smoke alarm system, basically, so, so continuous monitoring of sealed wells. One would ass- there, 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 I, as I understand it, there's a very similar application of what you would do for uh, a sealed CO2 well. Um, but you're, yeah, you're absolutely right, and that's some stuff we've heard before um, in the North Sea. Is yeah, what happens if you do? Are, you are storing massive numbers of, uh, you know. Tons of CO two uh, in, in a reservoir. What if it what if it breaches? You know that would be uh, catastrophic. Um, and I think it's right that they're focusing on that in um, the way they are. The budget. Um, so yeah, well, slightly adjacent to that, we have this review of the UK's oil and gas tax regime. We had the outcome outcomes of that published, and uh, you know the, the industry was asking for a number of things, not least the end of the windfall tax. Shock, shock, <laughs> surprise! There, they didn't decide to end it. One of the things was, though, however the oil and gas operators they can they can claim sizable rebates on their tax losses linked to decommissioning and what they wanted was to be able to use those funds and be able to apply them to repurposing their assets for carbon capture and storage things like converting pipelines whatever else. Uh, and that's going to be granted in, in new, um, new law to be legislated for and that should um, it should. Uh, make things a bit easier in terms of making investment decisions around CCUS. Um, I believe Harbour Energy, who are the largest North Sea producer at the moment they, in the UK, they were, they were they were asking for this quite firmly. Um, so that that seems to me quite a boon to the industry. Um, you know, there were there were a couple of other things that were uh, helpful. You know, there, there will continue to be kind of this investment allowance for electrification at a cut down rate after the end of the windfall tax. But you know. Again, questions of FID on these projects, it's all got to be weighed up against the wider industry picture. And, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, the windfall tax will continue to loom quite large in that respect. But yeah, I mean, CCUS, look, it's a place, it's a a field where um, these big oil operators can get involved in, are getting involved in. um, And uh, it'd be good to see if you. FIDs actually actually happen. I mean, this is
1: the thing, right? This you is know? this is the um, this is the kind of the big change, right? Obviously, we've been sort of you know, and you know, we were discussing some of the you know, the sort of the historic projects that we've looked at in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Longannet, Peterhead, yeah. and you know, I think Longannet was twelve years ago, thirteen years ago. I mean, it it's extraordinary that there have been that many false starts, and I think it's this kind of idea about kind of government certainty, right? I think, you know, yeah. people were saying essentially. We want things to stop changing and just allow us to kind of, you know, work out how to how to, how to work in this particular system, and then and then we can kind of go ahead. Yeah.
0: No, I think I think that's absolutely fair. It's, again, it seems to be the same things are uh, <laughs> yeah. cro- cropping up, the same themes all the time. Uh, well, look, we'll look out for that report when it's out uh, next week. Yeah, that's your promise. Yeah, that's that,
1: that's, uh, that's my pledge. <laughs> that's your pledge. That's my manifesto. All
0: right. Well, thank you, Ed. Next up, uh, I'll be back and talking about some supply chain crunch for decommissioning. ESG
2: Legalities is a special one-off podcast episode brought to you by Sustainable Growth Voice in paid partnership with Burn S. Paul. Join me, Heather Dinwoody, in conversation with Stephen Stewart, head of ESG at Burn S. Paul, and Lynn Gray, head of health, safety and corporate crime. We'll be shedding light on the legal perspective of ESG, exploring the opportunities it holds and explaining what success truly looks like in practice. This special episode is available now, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Okay, so I was at uh, OUK's DCOM conference this week in St Andrews at the Fairmont Hotel. I was not staying in the Fairmont, I was in the Premier Inn, just, uh, just so you know. Um, <laughs> the
1: finer things.
0: Just, you know, not better about it or anything. Um, a couple of overriding uh, messages around that conference, I think, this week. One of which um, you know we've known a bit about for a while, but I'd say it's definitely getting louder in that messaging. Is this competition for resource? as we ramp up decommissioning and, at the same time, offshore wind installation. Um, the big kind of decom Insight report uh, that came out this week saying in the year 2026, 100,000 tons to be removed uh, from the UK sector. At the same time, you're going to have to install about 200 large wind turbines. Uh, as only UK put it, a colossal effort will be required from the heavy lift industry in order to do that. Um, you know so you're looking at that heavy competition um, you've got a couple of issues there one um, heavy lift vessels in case you're not paying attention are getting booked up uh, and secondly you know rigs uh, and vessels are ge- in general terms moving out of the UK right now there are better rates uh, elsewhere so you have that competition uh, on the heavy lift space you've also got competition for yard space um, you know if you own a yard in Scotland you've got to make a decision do I want to help Make kind of lay down space for assembly for offshore wind turbines or do i want to be kind of available to take tonnage in from you know i'm not an oil platform or whatever else And i was speaking to one of the yard owners at the conference who said to me well 2026 is well and good in the years up to that though not that much tonnage coming in so why on earth would i hold off kind of have a, a, a consistent offshore wind uh contract that i can there's plenty of them going to be kicking about very soon um, why would I hold off for, for DCOM? So, you've got those kind of two pretty tense um, pieces there. You know, you've got, you know, again, going back to the rigs thing, 2,000 wells to be PA'd over the next 10 years. That's going to be about 10 billion pounds worth of work. At the same time, though, you know, you have, again, the rigs and vessels heading off to you know other places around the world where there are better day rates. So, something has got to give here. Um, I don't think it's out of the realms of possibility that you could. Uh, get your rigs and, and vessels and your heavy lift vessels staying in the UK, but that's going to come at a premium um, and the cost will go right up if uh, if people are, are holding off. There have been examples like uh, Taka. Um, I think last year they signed a deal with AllSeas for four platforms post 2025 to be kind of lifted up and removed in the UK sector, a bit of creative contracting there. But again, I think what we're kind of heading towards is this issue of uh, really high costs. Um, so something's got to kind of give. Um, rates will need to go up. Um, but yeah, the power is in the supplier supplier's hands. So. Sure. I
1: mean, one thing that strikes me, and uh, kind of, this kind of came out of a conversation I was having with somebody last night, mm. is, it, is it kind of around... Um, that kind of competition and, and, and the, this kind of high, obviously, we're seeing incredibly high rates for uh, for rigs. They seem to kind of go higher and higher, but, you know, which uh, obviously, if you're in the drilling industry, that's, you know, the, the it's very boom and bust, right? Mm-hmm. So at the, at the moment, very much moving into a boom, largely not in the UK, as you say, but there, there is kind of competition for rigs. I think one of the kind of interesting things, though, is, is around that kind of idea around um, what decommissioning can offer is not you know like a sort of single well contract it's not like a you know like a three well contract in in like senegal or something it's saying listen i've got a i've got to decommission like 50 wells over the next i don't know how you know say three years or something right so you're saying like you know so i think there is there is there is scope you know to maybe kind of get a a, a lower day rate by saying like we're longer contract
0: Yeah, Yeah, and, and there have been, uh, well, there's one company in particular. I won't shout out two companies on the same podcast. Uh, but there have been this idea of P&A clubs, um, several different operators coming in together, a bit of flexible timing around the contract. So that makes things much more attractive to that uh, supplier, that specialist that can carry out the work. Yeah, so that's one thing. What's
2: interesting as well, that my understanding is there's still a lot of flexibility around when this contracting is done right so in this TACA deal I don't know the details yeah. but, you know they have a bit of flexibility in when the the supply chain can deliver on that and when they're moving right yeah. but it's it's you know even with that flexibility there they will be booked there's just a limit to capacity right and yeah. actually as you say the cards are kind of held by the the heavy lift sector at the moment yeah <laughs> like. I
0: think I think I think the TACA deal if I'm not mistaken all they've kind of said is to be removed post 2025 yeah. which yeah isn't isn't totally specific and I get it's it, it's it's good that they've They've done that, and and clearly they're sticking to a plan to to remove their platforms, and that's good because decommissioning's always been seen as this kind of movable feast. But you still need the yards to kind of know when this is going to come in, um, and and a separate kettle of fish there being that Scotland has pretty limited yards to take um, take decommissioning and recycling. So that's that's one kind of major issue that came out of this conference. There is one other one that I want to talk about, as one that we've reported on quite a lot is uh, you know there, there's you know did the Slido vote. What are the main challenges facing the UK decommissioning sector? And it was around the OSPAR convention, which we've written about before. Uh, And this is the the pan-European treaty that requires, among other things, complete removal of man-made structure from the seabed. There's been a few really high-profile issues around that of late, not least Shell, the contents of the the Brent platform legs. Um, You have got TACA, the Bray Bravo jacket footings. You've got a couple of others. I think Barrel has one. Um, Fairfield, Dunlin. Anyway, it's this, this issue where they're trying to get exemptions to this rule, um, but the OSPAR kind of deliberations are going on for years. So basically, you know, the UK who is in control of this is trying to convince Germany, for example, or the Netherlands to say, look, we want to allow them to do this because we think it's technically feasible or the best option. And then Germany and the Netherlands are, are arguing against it. And because this is a pan kind of European treaty that we're signed up to, they've kind of got to get everybody around the table. The fact that Shell, as you know, the prime example, that's rolled on for about, I think it's six years or something like that now, um, and you can see why, and, and you know if that's kind of going on why people would say this is, you know, we we haven't got any surety of this going on or the work and all the rest of it, and I think that's why they kind of said this is one of the main issues facing us. Um, there was some discussion of the Shell stuff, the Shell Brents. I'm getting into a whole other kettle of fish here, but basically. Um, Thousands of tons of oil sediment contents in these giant gravity gravity-based structures. They're about Eiffel Tower sized. When you fast. started
1: talking, the the, the words that, that popped into my mind were oily sludge. Oily sludge. Uh, <laughs> well, think... that's
0: the way it's been put before. Um, <laughs> but basically, uh, you know, the contention is, uh, you know, can you remove these actual plat these these legs themselves? Very very challenging. Po- probably you know, exceptionally challenging. Um, they weren't designed for removal. However, the contention is by places like Greenpeace uh, the scientific community is that you can actually remove this this the contents inside and leave the clean concrete in place uh, and David Santillo who's the senior scientist at Greenpeace he's a, a researcher at Exeter, Exeter University I believe uh, he made a really valid point I thought that well if the oil and gas industry can extract oil and gas you know s- s- ultra deep water, um, you know extracting, you know, some sludge from these structures in 100 metres um, of water shouldn't really be out, out with the, the realms of, of what's, you know, technically possible. I
1: mean, reservoirs are naturally pressured, though. I mean, yeah. right? Sure, but,
0: yeah, I, I, I still I mean, I, 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 with...
1: I, 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 it, it makes a good line. I'm just yeah. not sure <laughs> if it's, you know...
0: Yeah, I, 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 I well... Shell in 2009, uh, according to what we've reported on OSPAR before, had uh, had documents proving that this is technically possible. So there's some sort of gamesmanship going on here um, in terms of what can and can't be done. We're expecting a kind of resolution to the Brent issue next year, he said tentatively, um, at least in terms of what a decision will come, according to Shell anyway. I
2: I think it's important to say as well, it's the the contents that seem to be a much larger issue than the so legs the, i think the contents, there is some give and take on on whether these structures can be left as you know there's bricks to reef there's lots of different discussions on that but it, the contents i think to leave them there would be at the moment <laughs>
0: under yeah. the
2: asphalt can consider dumping and that's a much bigger uh, problem to be dealt with and to be overcome than sort of a bit of give and take over yeah. steel right yeah and
0: it's concrete. it's 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 absolutely not the legs themselves it's so that the, the problem is if you leave the legs in place with that stuff inside the legs will degrade over time mm. spill out into the sea and we don't know what the impact of that will be on the environment if you can leave the clean concrete if you like in place and remove the oily sludge yet, uh then that seems to be the scenario that all parties will kind of get around the table and uh, agree to but there's certainly been some um, a lot of contention over it, and there are similar derogation requests and things of that nature going on around the UK. Well, than the other platforms. its a
2: huge precedent, isn't it?
0: Yeah, um, it's 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 going to be because there are other platforms of gravity-based kind of structures, these storage cells, uh, out there. So it would be yeah, it's it's an important one for so us. So
2: we've got an OSPAR meeting now, or in November, December, and then is another one kind of March, April. Is that? I think that's you... right.
0: There is time. There is there is a there is a time uh, a schedule. Somewhere. But, <laughs> but yeah, uh, but yeah uh, I, I, that's, yeah, This the, the, uh, right now they're kind of working up, you know, the derogation requests and it's getting really technical, but, you know, the guidelines of what you can apply for and what you can't. And, yeah, yeah basically we've been told we can expect a, a decision of some kind next year. When mm-hmm. which point we'll be able to talk a little bit this guy. <laughs> Stay tuned. I'm the oil sludge. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> we'll park the oil sludge there. Uh, and that is it for this episode of Energy Voice Out Loud in person. Uh, I IRL, and thank you to Ed and Andrew for joining me. We're going to go and uh, try the helter skelter outside now. Um, That is it. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Out loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com.